So the sermon scripture reading for today is the entirety of Genesis 18, so I'm going to say you can sit down. (laughs) And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Indeed, I bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Then men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men uh, turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous, the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. 
And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but once. Suppose ten are found there. He said, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It may help you to have your copy of the scriptures open to uh, Genesis 18, if you don't already, if you didn't do that as Joanna was reading. Um, Several years ago, there was a uh, first grade teacher who was teaching her class, and she said, okay, it's, it's art time, so you can just, you can do whatever you want, you can paint whatever you want during this time. And so as the children, this uh, first graders were painting, she was making her way around the room, looking at them and commenting, and she came up to one little boy, and, and she said, Chandler, my, that is certainly an interesting picture. What is it? And he said, well, it's God. And she was taken aback. She said, well, you know, no one's ever seen God. We don't know what he looks like. Little Chandler, in all seriousness, looked up and said, you do now. <laughs> you know, it, that humorous false story brings up the point that people will make God in some kind of image. People have been painting God throughout history, usually from their own imagination, in order to make sense of the world that they live in. Thankfully, we don't have to do that. We don't have to paint God according to our imagination because God has revealed himself to us. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mike was preaching on God's word and reminded us that we have a God who reveals himself to us. The writer of the Hebrews begins his letter with these words. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. One of the ways that God revealed himself in the past that we see in the Old Testament is through what are called theophanies. Now, this is not by any means the only way, but it was one of the ways. The word theophany simply means God appearance, an appearance of God in a visible and often dramatic way. These theophanies came in different forms. Sometimes natural phenomena, like an earthquake or a thunderstorm. Sometimes unnatural phenomena, like a burning bush. And sometimes, like we see in our passage this morning, in human form. All of these theophanies were temporary, they were impermanent, and they find their fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who reveals to us perfectly what God is like. Just as Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So these theophanies are demonstrations of God's presence with his people. As Chandler mentioned early, earlier, this is 
the first in the secondary series of uh, sermons when the invisible God becomes visible. And so we're looking at Genesis 18 this morning. And I want to point out three things from this passage. I'm not going to read the chapter again. You can, say, you can thank me later for that. But um, there are three things that I want us to see. First of all, God displays mercy and grace in his announcement that Sarah would give birth to a son. I'll repeat that in a minute if you want to write it down. But God displays mercy and grace in the announcement that Sarah would give birth to a son. Secondly, God displays affection and consideration for Abraham in revealing to him his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah. And then third, God displays justice and patience in how he deals with sinners. But before we look at each of those in turn, would you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to look to you through your word. We thank you, our Father, that you are indeed the God who has not left us to grope aimlessly uh, to try to make up on our own what you're like. But you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself in the world that you have made. You've revealed yourself in your word that you have given to us, this perfect book. Father, you have revealed yourself supremely, perfectly in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that as we look at Genesis 18, at how you revealed yourself to Abraham and Sarah, Lord, we would learn from it. And it would not just instruct us, not just inform us, but Lord, we pray that it would shape us that it would serve to help us to become even more like you, even more like the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have given to us to save us from our sins and that we might be conformed to his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, God displays mercy and grace in his announcement that Sarah would give birth to a son. We find that in the first 15 verses. Now, the first eight verses are just whenever the Lord appears. Verse 1, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Now, verse 2 says that there were three men. Now, immediately it's not apparent, you know, who these three men are, but Abraham does seem to discern that one of them is the Lord, Yahweh himself, in the flesh. Later on in chapter 19, which we won't look at, we find out that the other two were angels. They are the ones who went on to Sodom to um, judge that city. But we see that Abraham responds very reverently, very courteously, very in, in, in hospitality, which was common in that culture in that day. And uh, while these men are eating, while they're sharing a meal with Abraham, they ask a question. And that's where we want to begin really focusing. And that's in verse 9, where the question is, where is Sarah, your wife? And that gives us an indication that that's really one of the main reasons why they're here. They have an announcement, not for Abraham, but for Sarah. Why do I say that? Because 
I know that in chapter 17, they've already told, the Lord has already told Abraham, not they, but the Lord has already told Abraham this same thing. The Lord has made a covenant with Abraham, has changed his name from Abram to Abraham, changed Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah, and has told Abraham that he's going to be a father again. But this time, not by Hagar, but by his wife, Sarah. Now, evidently, Abraham, Abraham had not told Sarah this, judged on the basis of her response. It was probably wise that he did not do that. And I'll get to that in a minute. But can you imagine what Sarah has been going through all of her life? Here she is, 90 years old. She's passed through the childbearing age a long time ago. She's seen other women get pregnant and give birth. In fact, when it became apparent that the Lord was not going to bless her with a child, she gives her servant Hagar to Abraham, unwisely, as it turns out, for him to father a child through Hagar, which he does. And then it becomes even more apparent that the problem is not with Abraham. The problem of childlessness is Sarah. Can you imagine the pain, the shame especially in that culture that she felt. Now she's 90. She's past the age. Do you think Abraham would be able to convince her that she's going to have a baby? Not likely. I mean, just consider this. I come to my wife some morning and say, sweetie, the Lord has appeared to me and told me that you're going to have a baby next year. Now, our problem's not been fertility. We have four children, all right? And my wife is many decades short of 90. Many, many, many decades, I just want you to know. She's a lot younger than I am. But at hearing the words, the Lord appeared to me, She's already suspicious and thinks I'm trying to make some stupid joke. But when she realized it's not my warped sense of humor at play, but I'm serious, that I really think that I've heard from the Lord and, and have this message to give to her, then she begins to ponder, no, not what it would be like to become a mother again at her age, but just where she's going to have me committed because she knows I'm insane. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think it was common in Sarah's day for 90-year-old women to become pregnant? I'll help you with those tough questions. No! <laughs> not at all. It was not only not common, it was impossible. How would Sarah ever believe that that was going to happen if God told her? If God came in the flesh and announced this to her and we know we know that she did believe now initially not so much she laughed right but then she does come to believe even before she's pregnant how do we know that well because the writer to the hebrews writes this by faith sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. She came to believe that it was true. 
probably because the only way that this person could know her thoughts was if he really was the Lord. You see, it says that Sarah laughed to herself or within herself, depending upon the translation. This was not a belly laugh. This was not a guffaw. It wasn't even out loud. It was just to herself that she laughs and that she has this conversation about becoming pregnant. So, how could this person know that this, how could this person know her thoughts? Because he was the Lord. The Lord himself. David talks about God's knowledge of us in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You, discern, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before words on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Only God knows our thoughts before they're ever spoken. And he does know our thoughts, which can be a sobering thing, can't it? In fact, it was scary to Sarah. I didn't laugh. No, you did laugh, the Lord said. But it was an encouraging thing to her as well. The Lord displayed his grace and mercy in that he told Abraham and Sarah. had told Abraham in chapter 17, but tell Sarah now, she's going to have a child. The great desire of her heart is going to come to pass. But not only does he display mercy and grace to Abraham and Sarah with this announcement. Secondly, he displays his affection and his consideration for Abraham in, his, in revealing his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah. After this scenario with Abraham and Sarah and the announcement of her going to have a child. These men, it says in verse 6, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And then the Lord has a dialogue with himself. Should I, should I tell Abraham about what's going to happen? I mean, seeing, here it says, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I have chosen him that he may command his children, his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. We see two things here in this dialogue, this reasoning for the Lord sharing with Abraham his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah. The first is his relationship with Abraham. He says, For I have chosen him that's literally for i have known him it speaks of an intimate relationship a, a personal relationship a according to god's sovereign grace he knew abraham just not knew about him but knew him intimately and chose him according to his purpose and plan to be the father of a great Nation. We, we see again and again in Scripture that Abraham had a unique place in the life of Israel. Obviously, he was the father of the Israelites. He, they all started from 
him. But also, Abraham is called the friend of God in James chapter 2, verse 23. Not many in Scripture have that designation, the friend of God, at least not in the Old Testament. Kent Hughes, in the Preaching the Word commentary on Genesis, comments on this unique relationship specifically as, as it relates to this incident. He says this, Abraham became the only mortal to ever dine with God prior to the incarnation of the Son. Prior to the incarnation, Abraham was the only person to ever dine with God. Why? Because he had a special relationship with the Lord. This special relationship undoubtedly was one reason that the Lord took him into his confidence in revealing his plans. It reminds me of what Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 15. He said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friends share with one another. Jesus called his disciples friends. He shared with them all that the Father had made known to him. And God shared with Abraham his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah. But it wasn't just this relationship that they had. Because with this relationship came a tremendous responsibility. Abraham had a responsibility, and we see it right there in the text. For I have chosen him that, or so that, he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The Lord had chosen Abraham to make of him a great nation and to bless all the nations through him. Not just a large nation, which it would be, but a special nation. A nation of people who would reveal, who would display God. A nation unlike others, one who would keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Before the law was ever given to Israel, that would not come for 400 years. Abraham had the responsibility to teach his children and his household and all who would follow what it meant to be God's peculiar people. What it meant for how they were to live. They were to avoid the detestable practices of the nations around them. They were to be holy as the Lord is holy. In fact, the Lord's blessing on them was conditioned on their obedience to the Lord. So what does that have to do with God revealing to Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? God wanted to impress upon Abraham the absolute necessity of teaching his children and those after him to follow the Lord by giving him a vivid illustration of what happens when a nation fails to live righteously and justly. It was a powerful reminder that no one can sin with impunity and not expect 
consequences. Now we know, unfortunately, that the nation of Israel, while it was never destroyed with fire and brimstone, again and again and again, they had to experience the discipline and the judgment of God. Why? Because they didn't live up to what God had called them to be. They had failed to do righteousness and justice. The book of Judges alone is nothing but a a repeated cycle of Israel's failure to obey the Lord. They're falling into idolatry and being disciplined for it and then crying out to the Lord. He sends them a judge to deliver them. And not long after they're delivered, they fall into sin again, again and again and again. Why? Why? Because God disciplines those whom he loves. And here at the beginning, he's impressing upon Abraham the necessity of teaching the people to live in righteousness and justice. The people thought that because they had Abraham, the friend of God for their father, they could live any way they wanted and still have God's favor. They could go through all the motions, all do all the religious things without living righteously. And they'd be okay because they had Abraham as their father. It was not so. While the Lord never abandoned his covenant that he made with Abraham, there were always serious consequences for their failure to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. We have a special relationship with the Lord by his grace and for his glory. We also, along with this relationship, if you know Christ personally as your Savior and Lord, you also, we also have a tremendous responsibility to live in a way that demonstrates the difference the Lord has made in our lives. We have a responsibility to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And the Lord has given us provisions to do that. He's given us His Word that reveals His, His will and His way. He has given us His Spirit who indwells us and who empowers us to do so. But we must never think that the Lord's blessing in choosing and saving us exempts us from the truth that we will reap what we sow. That if we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. Neither must we be lured into the deception that because our church, or maybe even our denomination, has been especially blessed with growth and influence, that we can ignore sin. That we can ignore immorality or oppression or any form of injustice in our midst and still experience the favor of God. With a special relationship comes tremendous responsibility. In addition to God displaying grace and mercy to Abraham and Sarah, in addition to displaying affection and consideration to Abraham in particular, The third thing we see is that God displays justice, but also patience in how he deals with sinners. God is a just God, and he will deal with sin. But he's also a patient God. In verse 20, we read this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, you may wonder, didn't he already know? Isn't he God? I mean, I thought he was omniscient. Well, 
this kind of language is often used in Genesis, <clears throat> not as a denial or in conflict with God's omniscience, but rather a way of humanize, or rather, rather a way of emphasizing in human terms that His judgment is always according to truth. It's the Lord's way of letting us know that His judgment is altogether righteous. It's not arbitrary or capricious. It's not based on hearsay or rumor. When judgment comes, and it will come, it will be totally just. One of the things that we need to take note of is the Lord's use of the word outcry regarding the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see where they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. This is a word that speaks of oppression and brutality. Again and again and again in Scripture, that's how it's used. We generally think of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah as being sexual sin, right? Sexual immorality. I mean, after all, the word sodomy from Sodom is synonymous with deviant sexual sin. But Ken Hughes, again, helps us to understand a little more fully the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. He writes, if we imagine the sins of these cities only in sexual terms, we miss the depth of their depravity. The Hebrew word for outcry is used in Scripture to describe the cries of the oppressed and brutalized. It is used for the cry of the oppressed widow or orphan, for example, in Exodus 22, 22. The cry of the oppressed servant in Deuteronomy 24, 15. And the cries of the Israelites in Egypt. Jeremiah uses it again and again to refer to the scream of terror by an individual or city when it is attacked. Such an outcry is the miserable wail of the oppressed and the brutalized. Sodom and Gomorrah lived in the depths of depravity. Yes, because of their sexual immorality, but even more because of the oppression and the brutality there. Ken Hughes goes on to add this. We must understand that God hears the outcries of humanity. He hears the cry of the baby as it suffers abuse. He hears the cry of an old man beaten on the street. He hears the cries of the teenage girl as she is compromised. He hears the tears of the abandoned wife. He hears the bitter moans of the man stripped of his dignity and humiliated by the system. The cries of painful silence go up all at once in a deafening roar, and God hears them all, even the whimpers and the silent screams. I would add that he hears the cries of citizens brutalized by a foreign army that has invaded their country. He hears the cries of families who have lost Loved ones, young and old, to senseless violence and hatred or to a viral pandemic. God hears the cries of humanity and he will give justice. In his time, he will give justice. We don't know how long the immorality and oppression had been building up in Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't say. But we do know this. Back in Genesis 13, verse 13, Lot had already decided to, to move there, to this area. And when he does, it says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners 
against the Lord. This had been going on for some time. God had been more than patient with the people in these cities. It was time for action. And yet, before he acted, he shared his plans with Abraham. So how, do, how does Abraham respond? Yeah, Lord, go get him! No, that's probably how I would respond. It's not how, the Lord, how Abraham responded. Maybe because Abraham knew Lot and his family were there. But, it, but he intercedes. And not just for Lot and his family. But he says, Lord, if there are only 50 righteous, will, will you spare the city? Will, will you judge the city if, if there are 50 righteous? Let's read that intercession. Beginning in verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And, of course, we know that Abraham goes forward, goes even further. Emboldened by this, he continues to whittle down the number until he gets to ten. And we know that there weren't even ten righteous in the city. The only ones who are ultimately spared are Lot and his daughters. What do we see? Well, we see, first of all, as many have pointed out, that Abraham is... Is a great example of interceding for others. There are lessons for us here about interceding, even for those that perhaps we think don't deserve it. But first, we need to see that Abraham's not the most compassionate person here. He's not the most merciful and patient. It's the Lord who's more patient, more merciful. The Lord displays patience not only with Sodom and Gomorrah for however long. Look at the patience he displays with Abraham here. I mean, I would say, Abraham, you're getting on my nerves, all right? I, I get the point. I get it, but, but he doesn't. Why? Because all Abraham is doing is mirroring the heart of God. He is mirroring the compassion that God has for sinners. In fact, there's a traditional Hebrew story that illustrates this. Abraham was sitting out his tent one evening, saw an old man, weary from age and journey, coming toward him. Abraham rushed out, just like he did with these men in Genesis 18, and invited him into his tent, gave him something to eat, washed his feet and gave him something to eat. The old man immediately began eating without offering any kind of blessing or prayer or anything. And Abraham said, wait a minute, don't, don't you worship God? The old man said, I worship fire only and no other God, no other deity. Abraham was incensed. He couldn't believe it. So he grabbed the old man by the shoulders and threw him out of the tent. Not long after that, the Lord came to Abraham and said, where's the old man that I sent to you? Abraham replied, I forced him out because he didn't worship you. The Lord replied, I've suffered him these 80 years, although he dishonors me. Couldn't you endure him for one night? 
Whether that's a true story or not, it illustrates what we see about God's patience with sinners. God is just, absolutely, and sin will be judged. But it doesn't say in Scripture that God is rich in judgment. It does say He is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Isaiah 55, 6 through 8, we read this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is a God who delights in forgiving. Delights in sparing people if they will but repent. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Now this was obviously to a wayward people of God, but it expresses God's heart. To forgive sinners. In Matthew chapter 5, we are told that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then later in that same chapter, we read this. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I said to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We are to be compassionate even with our enemies. Why? Because God is. God our Father is. And we are to be like him. Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that one of the reasons for the delay in the Lord's return is his patience towards sinners. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is just, but He's also patient, infinitely patient, much more patient than I am. While His justice, which is in keeping with His holiness, demands that unrepentant sinners receive the just wages of their death, excuse me, just wages of their sin, He takes no pleasure in their judgment. He is rich in mercy. Aren't you glad? Aren't we glad that God is rich in mercy? Where would we be? All of these characteristics that we see of the Lord in Genesis 18, His grace and mercy, His affection and consideration, His justice and His patience, are displayed again and again throughout Scripture in both Testaments. But they find their ultimate fulfillment, their perfect demonstration in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His life, but especially in His death on the cross for sinners. So let me leave us with three questions to ponder in conclusion. First of all, how deeply do I grasp God's grace and mercy? Towards me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we read this. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That is, that's what we had earned, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How deeply do I grasp the grace and mercy of God for me? Secondly, do I ever presume on God's grace because I'm saved and secure or do I daily pursue righteousness and justice righteousness and justice not presuming that well you know once saved always saved right so I can live any way no do I presume on God's grace or do I daily fight sin with all the means that God has made available and pursue righteousness and justice, a holy life. And then third, our patience and mercy, my default response, our default response to the sins of others, especially when those sins are against us. Ooh, that's, that's challenging, isn't it? Is patience and mercy my default response to the sins of others? Or is it a desire for vengeance? Forgetting that the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. How much do I mirror God in His grace and mercy? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you again for the gift of your word. We thank you, our God, that what we see revealed in this book that you have inspired, that you have preserved for our good, Lord, we find that you're the same throughout, that you do not change that you are and have, a, have always been and always will be a God of grace and mercy. A God who has particular affection for those who belong to you. A God who is not only just, but infinitely patient with sinners. Oh, we praise you for that. Because we are the recipients of your patience, of your mercy and grace. We pray, our God, that we, this would be the message that we both proclaim 
to a desperate world, but also that we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.